0: Good afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson-Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to today's Ask the Expert webcast, Young Adulthood, Preparing Older Teens for the Road Ahead. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming author and columnist Dr. Wes Crenshaw, who specializes in the challenges facing older teens and young adults. The Ask the Expert webcast series is presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD. Which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence based information on ADHD. A recording of today's broadcast will be available through the National Resource Center on ADHD's website, helpforadhd.org, and it should be available in about two business days. To view the recording sooner, please follow the same link you used to join us today. The recording will be available about 30 minutes following our presentation. We may not be able to get to all of your questions today. If you would like to talk with a health information specialist for further information on today's topic, please contact us Monday through Friday, 1-5pm to Eastern Standard Time at 1-800-233-4050, or you can reach us online at www.helpforadhd.org Finally, following today's webcast, a brief survey will appear on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to let us know what you think and how we can better serve the ADHD community through the Ask the Expert webcast series. It is a privilege to introduce today's guest, Dr. Wes Crenshaw. Dr. Crenshaw is a board is board certified in couples and family therapy by the American Board of professional psychology. He is a regular columnist in Your Teen Magazine and is a frequent guest on public radio. He is also the author of I Always Want to Be Where I'm Not, Successful Living with ADD and ADHD. For those of you who would like to ask Dr. Crenshaw a question following his presentation, written questions can be submitted in the questions box on your GoToWebcast toolbar as indicated in the red arrow shown in this slide. All questions are moderated and we will try to get to as many as possible during the Q&A portion of the webcast. Again, we are very pleased to welcome today's guest expert. Dr. Crenshaw, if you would like to begin.
1: Thank you so much, Ruth, and I will uh, add that we have been working diligently here in the last few minutes using the latest technology to be sure this goes well. And as all of you know, using the latest technology means Wish us luck. So if anything happens, if if we drop out on you or anything, bear with us. We have multiple backup plans, and we'll be right back with you uh, very shortly. And we do look forward to your questions. I'm going to do a a little discussion of some of the things folks could expect with a child or mid-teen as they are transitioning towards adulthood. And uh, very happy to take your questions then later on in the uh, hour. Uh, and pretty much anything is uh, open. As most of you know, if you have had teens or are about to, uh, that they, their issues run the full gamut of possibilities, and we're only going to try to scratch the surface here. But anything you're interested in talking about, please do. In my book, I Always Want to Be Where I'm Not, it really is uh, very much tailored towards this late teen and up to about 30-year-old age range, which as we all know is really critical. In helping uh, an adult to become more operational as an ADD person, so we'll begin. I'll talk a little bit about the different. What I see is the different categories of teenagers that we see at 15, 16, 18, up to 25. And I find that there are really three categories. And uh, among those of you listening, I think you'll identify your child as being in one of these, or occasionally you'll see a little bit of a mixture. But the first one is the optimistic, the second is the terrified, and the third is the lost. And every week in my office uh, I see one or two of each of these. It's a very critical group. In fact, once the book came out, I have had to limit the number of these cases I take because they are so plentiful. We hear from people all over the country now, parents as well as young people who are really struggling with some of these issues in one of those categories. So the first one, and perhaps for parents, it really is the most annoying of the three, is the optimistic team. And you know, you ask yourself, like, why would anybody find that annoying? Well, for kids with ADD, and for some of them that are on the autistic spectrum, this is true too, that their optimism is not hope. Hope is different, and we're going to talk about that later. Optimism doesn't have to be based on anything realistic. And so with the overly optimistic uh, ADD team, they have this uh, kind of overdeveloped sense of freedom that doesn't really match up to their actual independence skills. And they will have a tendency to want to hit the door at 18 um, like the proverbial bat out of hell. They just are certain that with their exuberance and their uh, great wisdom at 18 that they will be able to live their lives just as they see fit. But what they don't realize is the amount of independence that takes. And I always teach kids that you know the old little song, freedom isn't free, it really is quite expensive. And one of the things that can help with these kids, and believe you me, it is not a guarantee, but is to just really take them very seriously and to say, this is great. Let me help you figure out how to make this all work. And so you sit them down and start walking through um, the budget and the costs. And I will say to you that working this way requires you to believe in their authentic choice. And it is possible. I have done it. I do it all the time. It is possible for these kids to actually get out and um, make their way and earn a living or whatever they may wish to do, but it does require them to become more planful than they are used to being. And so if you really will work with them, you know, even if you don't think it's a very good idea, help them figure out how to find that themselves. And the, you know, the sort of sad irony of this is you're kind of breaking their optimism. And that seems sad, but when you realize that sometimes their optimism is based only on exuberance and energy and not on uh, an understanding of the world, you realize why that's probably an important thing to do. So then we have the next group, and they are the terrified teens. And these guys are really and girls are really the opposite of the optimistic ones. They uh, may – feel very satisfied with their current situation, which means often living you know, in the same room they've occupied since they were in kindergarten or uh, just staying at home. Kids that won't drive, we see a, a high number of kids with ADHD who just don't want to drive. My daughter is one of them. Uh, I never thought I would have to let like, Joel and pressure and threaten a teenager to want to drive, but we really – have gotten to the point where we're saying you're not going to get to do things now that you're 18 that you would like to do because we're not going to tote you around anywhere. That's one example of the terrified teen. They just are so worried about their own shortcomings, whether it is uh, living on their own, or driving, or any other of the aspects of independence that most other kids hold so dear that they just sort of distance themselves from it. Now, let's take a moment and think about this. Every problem, in the world has its benefit, and every benefit has its flaw. So is it, a good, is it possible that the terrified team knows something that we don't? For example, I don't know whether my daughter is going to be a very good driver, so perhaps her wisdom is great, and she wants to wait and let herself mature a little bit more before she gets behind the wheel. Or what we know from the research is that the optimistic teens who move out on their own and try to take the world on you know, grab it by the horns, tend to end up either in dire straits or living back at home. So for that group, they are jumping the gun. For the terrified teens, sometimes they are just letting themselves grow up a little more, and the literature often tells us that's a good idea. I'm sure most of you know that uh, most kids are at least two and a half years behind kids that have ADD are at least two and a half years behind in maturity. So to some degree, what the parent needs to do in this situation is, again, honor the terror and also push the child at just the right uh, speed to get out and try things. Again, since my daughter is practicing for graduation this week, instead of listening to this, I can use her as an example, and she told me I could. Um, We... She will do junior college for two years. I strongly recommend that for these kids that are a little worried about getting out in the world, a good quality junior college can make all the difference in the world. They can live at home, continue to get some of that support, but also be pushed out just a little into the world. We have already begun to look at bridge colleges for when she graduates from junior college, and really are thinking now, what kind of a dorm would be the best fit for her. And in general, for kids with ADD, it is dorms that are designed where you can have your own private room, not a big room, usually just enough for a bed. We have found a college like that. So things like this for the terrified teens makes it easier for them to think about transitioning maybe a couple of years down the road. I was very pleased walking off the campus that we went to the other day how excited my daughter was about the possibility of, in a couple of years, living away from home. That's been very carefully engineered to match the pushing and the holding, the sort of helping her, embracing her, and nurturing her, and the pushing her out of the nest a little bit. So that's what you're looking for for the terrified group. Now, a minute ago I said that the most... uh, (laughs) The most annoying ones were the optimistic ones. I think some of the most difficult ADD teens to work with are the lost ones. And they are, they are neither uh, pushed by the energy of their fears nor particularly uh, ready to go out and try things. And so they just tend to avoid this. For the therapist and for some, to some degree for the parent, these kids are marked by you say to them, so, Bill, you're 17. What do you think you might like to do after you finish college? Or I'm sorry, after you finish high school? And Bill says, I don't know. And you say, no, I don't mean, um, like, do you, do you want to be an engineer or a fireman? Do you, just like, what are you thinking you might do the day after you graduate high school? I don't know. Have you thought perhaps you would like to go to to a kind of college or trade school? I don't know. And you look in their eyes, and they're not being oppositional. They're not just deflecting you. And I've actually had some uh, – it's more common with young men, believe it or not. I've had young men start to tear up in this situation, which is very unusual. Um, Girls will tend instead. Occasionally they just don't know, but instead they'll just change the subject. Guys, this becomes very emotional because in our society they're supposed to know things like this. And so this becomes the next dilemma that the parent, or in my case, the therapist has to deal with, is how do you help guide them without shaming them, without saying, dude, your whole class kind of knows they're going to at least do something in the few weeks and months after graduation without making them feel really bad about that. And the consequence of leaving this sort of where it's at is you have a much higher likelihood that you're gonna have kids living in the basement in perpetuity. Um, I've actually been thinking about doing a book called The Children Under the Stairs, the point of which would be uh, how many kids we have, many, many, many of them having ADHD, or some similar issue who just cannot launch uh, mostly young men at this point, who just cannot launch, and this usually starts off with them just being lost. very tricky, so what is the the magic sauce the the secret ingredient to fix everything? I always like those books like you know 10, Ten Steps to Nirvana or something. well, I don't have that for you, but uh, the thing that is most helpful for each of these kids is to develop hope. And hope is not an ethereal construct. Uh, my, one of my professors at the University of Kansas is world famous. He uh, has passed away since, but he, he was world famous for building an actual psychological construct around hope. His name was uh, C.R. Snyder. And one of his students who was a peer of mine is Shane Lopez, and he recently wrote a really good book about hope. So if you look on Amazon, those are available. And the idea of hope is not that it is optimism. Uh, Hope is made up of two constructs, willpower, which means how we think about our goals, do we have a plan? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, how we think about our goals and the energy we put into actually pursuing them. That's the willpower. That's the thing that gets us to get up every day and take the next step. And way power, which is our mental plan about our goals. How do we see the end result? Now, this is very tricky for folks with ADHD. I've done this for 23 years, and I've seen about 24,000 hours worth of clients, and many, many, many of them have ADHD. And what I've learned is that kids and adults with ADHD do not want the same way as the rest of us do. When I think about I'd like to get a PhD in psychology, I go to the library. I was in Wichita, Kansas at the time, and I went to the Wichita State Library, and I studied intensely to find out what what do these people with PhDs in psychology do to get them? How does this happen? And uh, you know, what, what kind of flavors? Of, like, where do you have to go to get these things? And I remember sitting there hours and hours I poring over these uh, books. You know we had books in those days. We didn't know there was an Internet in the future. And uh, I found answers there. And so that was my, my mental plan. And then my willpower was to take the energy to get up and to go through these things step by step in an organized fashion. I had to finish a master's degree, which I had not yet started. I had to do a thesis in order to excite graduate schools to let me in. I had to take the GRE. If you've ever done that, that's a blast, which meant I had to teach myself all of the algebra that I had not taken in college. And I didn't even have YouTube to do it. It was painful. So... All of those were the steps I had to lay out meticulously to get to my goal, and it worked. For young people with ADHD, this is very hard because to want is to do that thing I just described. Too often what we see with the ADHD kids is that they have wanting as wish fulfillment, meaning that you sort of it's a sort of fantasy, like, gosh, I'd like to have a Ph.D. someday right alongside with the sense, but that will never happen. And that is, the, that is a sense of hopelessness. And this can get uh, so serious, very commonly it can get so serious that you will get kids to despair and self-harm. And when we are really pushing a kid who's stuck under the stairs to get out on his own and to be more self-sufficient, we always, it's always implicit, in that plan, and everyone knows it in the room, that we have to guard against self-harm, suicidality, both as a threat and as an actual incident. And it's one of those things that no one ever questions. The parent will say it or I will say it to them, are you worried about self-harm? This is a failure, uh, the ultimate failure of hope. So with that great idea, how do we become more hopeful? How do we develop a more hopeful perspective? There are some real steps you can do. I kind of gave some examples when I told my little doctoral story. But it doesn't have to be that grand. It can be whether you're going to overhaul the engine in a car, or you're going to write a book, or you're going to um, ask a girl out on a date or a boy. And so you go through, and we do this I saw every day of the week. It's uh, just a, a process. So the first thing is you brainstorm You know what is the, what are the possibilities. Um, should I get a Ph.D. or a master's degree, or should I ask out, uh, you know, in today's world, you decide whether your sexual identity is gay or straight or bisexual or pansexual. You're actually just sort of coming up with all these different ideas. Am I going to ask the girl out or the guy out, or am I, gonna, uh, am I too afraid to do that? What will happen if they say no? Whatever the problem is, you're brainstorming all of these possibilities, and usually with a friend or a mentor or a therapist or a parent. Then you have to determine, is the goal attainable? Am I able to score high enough on the GRE? Am I smart enough to go to doctoral school? Actually, to be honest with you, you don't have to be that smart. You just have to be really tenacious. You have to hang in there. And you have to ask yourself, can I do that? Um, Is the person I'm interested in dating um, in my attraction profile? Do I have a shot at that? It's a question you have to ask yourself. Um, do I want to be? What kind of relationship do I want to be in? Whatever the, the goal is, is can I do it? And you have to do a fair assessment of that. As you can imagine, the overly optimistic teens are quite certain they can do anything. You know, They're going to be on American Idol or play for the NBA even though they're five foot eight or something. Um, you've got to think what is doable. And one of the mistakes in our society that we have made over the years is this idea that you, know, you can do anything you put your mind to. That's not a good coaching strategy for a teenager. It isn't the truth. And one of the things in these situations we always want to do is tell the truth and tell it kindly and when it's necessary. And so once you've kind of decided, yeah, this is within the range, and you can stretch yourself. You can try harder than you think you can do, but it's got to be in the range. Then you do the cost-benefit analysis. If I win this, if I do it, if I get this person to go out with me, if I get a Ph.D., is the benefit going to be worth the cost? Nowhere is this more important nowadays than in determining how much student loan debt to carry. And for a lot of young adults, the worst outcome is you have $75,000 in student loan debt and you drop out of school. That's the worst case scenario. But there are many others. If I get a degree in – I don't know, look up the top 10 worst degrees to get on Forbes. There are 10 on there. If I get one of those degrees and I have $100,000 in student loan debt, and my salary is $32,000 a year for the next 10 years, is the benefit going to outweigh uh, the cost? Talking to kids about this in those terms is very helpful. If I move into an apartment, I'm giving up all this money that I could put into something else. Is that a good choice? Kids may decide it is, but they've got to start thinking in terms of cost-benefit. All, as I said earlier, all choices have to be authentic. The more parents try to make the choice for the child at this age, the more likely the child is going to make an inauthentic choice, meaning they pull against the parent whether that's a good idea or not. Our whole book, Consent-Based Sex Education, is based on that very theory. Um, One of the mistakes people make, with ADHD in making decisions is to make things more complicated than there are. Now, it sounds like I'm making this super complicated and I don't need it to be, but it, it is very easy to take a simple problem and turn it into a mind-boggling mess. Um, help kids to get it down to the bare elements. Uh, we always say that every decision is actually a binary decision, yes or no. It may take a 100 of those binary decisions, but each one is made yes or no. Um, One of my favorites, uh, Master Yoda, tells us to do or do not, there is no try. And so I tell kids, in my office you're not allowed to use the words try or want. You have to tell me what you're going to do. And it's very funny. You'd be shocked how well this works. I will have kids in the middle of something, we haven't talked about this in weeks, and the kid will be like, well, okay, I'm going to try to study for the uh, – I mean I'm going to study for the GRE. They get why this is important. It's a reason why that quote from Yoda is so popular. Um, We talked a little bit about uh, determining if a goal is attainable. This also has to do with finding your limits. And then once you know your limits, how much can you stretch them? How much farther can you go? Pace is important. I get so many ADD kids in here who have this urgency. (laughs) I've got to get through nursing school in a year, you know, or whatever. And in fact, for kids with ADHD, it sometimes takes longer. You may need to be a five-year college student, or you may need to take three years in trade school instead of two. Pacing is critical. It's better to take six years to graduate from college than to fail in four. And this is just one of those things with these young people, we want to give them a little more time and perhaps push them every day of the week a little less so than we might otherwise do. And I always tell people you cannot alter your life when you are yourself altered. Alcohol and substance abuse do not improve decision-making. Today, our dear young people are quite convinced that smoking a lot of weed is a very helpful tool in a higher consciousness, and I try to help them think differently about that. Um, A lot of these... uh, will go better if you hook your young person up with a mentor. It doesn't have to be a therapist. I obviously think that's a neat idea. Um, it could be a coach. It could be a teacher. It could be an adult friend, um, somebody who who maybe has had ADHD or exposure to it that can help uh, find all the little peccadillas that come with it and, and work through it. And a lot of these we've talked about the You can kind of go back through the slides. I probably should have advanced them as I was going. I was enjoying um, talking about them and not pushing the button. But each of these are things we've discussed. And Oh, this is a good one. When a young person does well, one of the great things our phones do now is take pictures and document Uh, things we have done. And we make fun of this a lot, that kids love to take pictures of everything, especially themselves. You know, for kids with ADHD, making sure they get pictures of things they're doing well and taking pictures of those or tweeting about it or whatever, that can be a pretty neat thing. It's so often that one struggles and struggles with something that they want to be reminded of things they did well. And it, it's very true that that kind of encouragement, as opposed to praise, if you just praise somebody every five minutes, it doesn't mean anything. But when you're really encouraging them and documenting something that really was successful it can be very helpful when the chips are down. So with that, I would be happy to take some questions on any of those topics, or any okay, others and we, have que- well, we, we have
0: questions. Well, we have questions. And also, if you haven't submitted your question now, you can do so in the box on the left of your screen. And our first question now is coming in from Ellen. And she has a young adult who is 18. And he has attempted college. And uh, as she says, she has failed at this point. So he hasn't been successful with college. He is talking about going to junior college over the summer for one of his classes. But he's having trouble actually enrolling, getting started, and Ellen is wondering, how much help should she give him in taking this class, enrolling in school, and going forward?
1: Yeah, what a great question. And Ellen, I love your TV show. Uh, it's great. No, I, I, that is such a good question, um, because every week this is some something we get in the office. So it, without getting into the details of how old the kid is, because that can sort of matter, It's more important to know how mature he is. And my experience is that um, you have to probably give him a lot of help. Um, One of the things I talk about in the book extensively is the difference between beneficence and enabling. And everybody I see that has an adult kid that is in the position that Ellen is talking about I have to uh, give them this lesson. And beneficence is the ethic of giving. It means you give in a way that is helpful. So the classic example is if you see a person who is a a drug addict and they're asking for money, you, you don't give them money because you're concerned they'll spend it on drugs. You give them food. You give them a hamburger or something so that you're giving in a way that you believe will be helpful. Enabling is when you reinforce a situation that is already bad, and so you give to the child in a way that just makes them more dependent. So I, and believe me, you have to figure these out on an item-by-item item basis. Clients will come in, parents will come in and ask me, okay, we're going to do these five things. And we go down the list, and I say beneficent, beneficent, enabling, beneficent, enabling. And the core issue is if you're making the person ultimately more successful, that is beneficent. If you' are making them ultimately, ultimately more dependent, that is enabling. So if taking your kid to college and enrolling them in classes and you know, doing all the things it takes to get them there is probably beneficent. It might be annoying, That it's probably beneficent because you are ultimately getting them through school. Now if the person then responds by failing out of school or not going to class or any of that kind of thing, then it becomes enabling behavior to continue to pay for it and do it. One of the tools we've used to improve that situation is that the child goes to work for six months or a year, saves up money, perhaps they live at home and pay a rent, that you put into the bank and use for the purpose I'm about to describe. And then the child pays their tuition, goes to the junior college, and if they receive a grade point average of let's say 3.0 or 2.8 or whatever number you come up with, then you pay back the child. So they are the ones that have skin in the game for $1,200, $1,500. You will keep doing that. They then turn around and pay another fee in. Then you come back and pay them back. That way their skin's in the game, not yours. And the, that business about how to want, the energy behind that becomes I don't want to lose my $1,500. So even if you don't want to go to algebra that day, you do not want to lose the $1,500. And That becomes the, the message. So it it's all good to do a lot of helping, but when the person, when you are doing uh, all the work and the young person is not contributing much, then you're in the enabling mode. It's a really good question. I know how you feel.
0: All right, I think that is a good question. And I know that uh, Ellen has messaged us saying that she's really glad that you did answer her question, and it's uh, really a good one that I think a lot of parents do wonder. Well, our next question now uh, has to do with video games, which I'm sure you have heard before.
1: Oh, gosh. uh,
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Video games have become an important part of young adult culture at this point. And uh, our... Our participant has a son, and she was wondering, what are your thoughts related to the risk of excessive video games and video game playing when a young adult has ADHD?
1: I'm going to answer slightly more generically, though I will agree that what I'm about to say is actually worse for the ADD kids than in general. Okay, so for those of you who know me and have read my work, you know I am not a hysterical person. If I were a hysterical person, I would never be able to work with teenagers and young adults because they would drive my anxiety through the roof. So I am very calm. There are not very many things that get me worried. At the top of the list of things that get me worried are video games. Uh, And I'm not just trying to create a hyperbole here, but I, I do hold a health certificate in sex education and sex therapy from the University of Michigan. And I am convinced that video games are a bigger problem than free online pornography. And I think you can see my chapter about that. I think free online pornography is a problem. Video games are so beautifully designed to involve particularly boys, because girls play video games, but boys play them differently. They are so beautifully designed to involve you in in a rich, problem-solving, exciting, action-oriented experience that they essentially make it possible to achieve all manner of goals and intentions. I mean, you, you can interact with Yoda. He can give you advice on how to defeat the force, or the force, how to defeat the dark side of the force. And you don't need to think, you don't need to imagine Yoda. You don't need to imagine anything. You don't need to create anything because you can create it online. And I think we make a big deal out of kids having trouble separating fantasy from reality in video games. I actually don't think that's the problem. The literature says that's not the problem. What I see clinically as the problem is that it doesn't matter. They know good and well that's a fantasy. They know Yoda's not really there. It doesn't matter to them because it is so much solving all the yearnings and the interests that young people seek, that have always sought. And rather than have to go out and actually live that life, you can sit on the couch and become attached to it. Now, if somebody wants to get on uh, my website and find – I did a whole show on this. I didn't mean to do it on this, but it came up as a big part. I did a show that essentially we called What's the Matter with Boys right now. And I did it on St. Louis on the Air, and it's on my website. And there is a caller that gets on there who just goes off on me about this. And he initially was saying and he said he was a professor and that he used you know, was a video gamer and none of what I was saying was true. And then at the end of the call he finally admits that in the last uh, thirty days he's played like three hundred hours of video games or something like this. And it, it is a very telling Call as to what happens if anyone utters any negative words about video gaming. It has become an integral part of the culture. If you follow it, you know how intertwined they are. Now they will come back and tell you, hey, it's a social activity. We're involved with each other. That's absolutely true. They do. They interact with the people maybe from all over the world or all over the neighborhood. It is a perfectly valid social activity. I am not disputing that. But it is the issue of moderation that is unlike anything else I've ever seen. And we have a thing, a real thing, called behavioral addiction. And I am not one of those people that sees an addiction around every turn. But the, uh, the, uh, what it takes to have a behavioral addiction is that you have to be unable to stop and it has to have a negative effect on your life. And it, numerous young men I have worked with, numerous, have simply dropped out of school, dropped out of life, dropped out, period, because they are playing so many video games, and they cannot stop. And we are going to see, we already are seeing it, but we're going to see a rampant increase in treatment facilities specifically for withdrawal from video game use because of the way that it impacts the brain. So I've gone from saying moderation is a, you know, the key to everything, to if I could start over again, I think I might not even let my kids be exposed to video games. And I know I sound like I'm <laughs> going to start the anti-video game cult, and, and I'm not trying to go there. I just see the way these operate. And they, it seems to take, for the ADHD kids, a problem that is already about being too interested in what you're interested in, whether that's relevant or not, and focusing it like a laser on this highly interesting interactive pursuit. So you asked a question to get me on my soapbox, and there's my answer.
0: I think that was a very thorough answer, and it is one that uh, we have heard. We've heard in relationship with ADHD. And I think that you, you have certainly uh, provoked a few thoughts about video games. So I'm going to take us um, back to high school. And a young woman who is about to graduate high school, uh, Michelle has a daughter who is a senior and is getting ready to go to college. And uh, her daughter feels ready to go, but Michelle is not so sure if she is. And uh, she would like your suggestions, your advice. How do you know when a young person is ready to go to college?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll give you the bad answer first, and that is I have frequently been fooled. Um, On one hand, I live in a university town um, with very good high schools and advanced placement classes and so on, and so we launch a lot of kids into Ivy League schools here. And um, a a reasonable percentage of them come home broken, and they don't have any impairments. It is just um, that these schools are very difficult, and maybe they aren't ready to do that. So I, you know, that seems very surprising. Like, how would that ever happen? On the other hand, I have seen young people. I talk about several of them in the book with ADD, very seriously impaired, who have a knack for tenacity. That is their special power. Every ADD person has their special power. It's the thing they're really good at that other people with ADD are not. And their particular thing is tenacity, and. I have sat in graduations. I'm sitting in one this weekend, disbelieving that these young people have pulled themselves through, uh, and happy that they have, and glad to be a part of that. So knowing up front is extremely difficult. So the real question you want to know is what can what can I do to improve my guess? Well, it, the first thing is to take a look at how they've done in high school. If they did not like – one of the theories the optimistic kids have is that, well, I didn't like high school. The teachers all sucked. And when I get to college, I'll be studying just the things I want to study. Well, those of us who've been to college know that isn't true. You're going to study a gen ed curriculum. You're going to study these distribution requirements that they have. You're going to be having to get a broader range of experience. So if they did not like that in high school, they're probably not going to like it in college. The second thing to do is to ask them, you know, just in a kind of non-threatening way, have them get a hamburger and say, what are you sort of looking to get out of college? What do you think will be interesting there? And the more, it sounds kind of silly, but the more they can talk about the life of the mind, you know, the, the better off you are. The more they say, I just, it's going to be so fun to be in a sorority or um, to paint the school colors on my forehead, or I just want to be a part of that culture and be in that life in college, the more they don't actually understand what it takes to be in college. One of the terrible things we've done in this country, really been a problem in the last 50, 60 years, is to portray college as a four-and-a-half-year party. and. I always tell kids around here, for gosh sakes, don't go to college. If you want to be drunk from Thursday to Sunday, you can do that for free. You don't have to pay tuition. Wait till you're you know, done with that phase of your life and then go to college. That's absolutely not what we teach culturally. So the more that your daughter is excited about the idea of college, the less it, she's probably really ready as opposed to thinking, I have these – kind of general ideas for career. I understand kids don't need to go to college and know they want to, you know, major in engineering or something their first year, but having some kind of clear goal about what college means helps. And the less they have that, the the less likely they are to persist. Finally, there is clearly a gender bias in favor of girls in who succeeds in college. I don't mean a gender bias as much as the, the statistics are skewed for girls. Right now, uh, 60% of all college graduates are female, and it goes up a, a point every year. So being a girl, <laughs> that alone predisposes your daughter to being more successful in college. Girls will just keep at it longer than guys will. So, and this, but this is statistically demonstrated. Guys will pull out earlier in college than girls will. So you may, if you kind of combine all those factors together, uh, you may have a better guess. And the one thing I will say for kids who are correctly diagnosed with ADD, living away from home those first two years for college is associated with failure. So if she's close at hand or living at home, her chances are better. If she's living far away in the dorms, her chances will go down.
0: Thank you. I think that's uh, some good advice. And, And being excited for college for the right reasons is very important. Well, we've got a question now from Bert. And he is referring back to you and your daughter looking for a bridge college for her to attend. And he was wondering what else to look for other than a private dorm room. Should they be mm-hmm. looking for a large or a small school? Are there any colleges that are organized to accommodate kids with ADHD?
1: Oh, my brother, you have you have hit upon the thing of most interest to me right now. Um, w- my daughter it has a got a thirty on the ACT, so she's actually you know pretty good student as well as wildly ADD. And so um, I didn't, she's going to enter college with 15 hours of credit, actual hours of credit. So I suddenly realized that we're going to have to figure this out sooner than later. So my first advice is do not wait. Um, it has been so valuable for she and I, even though she's got two years before she would start, to begin to look around and to think, what's the right fit? for me and to talk a lot about it and to have it be kind of a relaxed discussion to know that we don't have to decide. So that's the first thing is really go test out some stuff. The first thing she liked about the college we're looking at is it is, it is physically small. Um, Beautifully organized. I don't know how to describe it any other way. It was built in the late 60s, and so all the buildings are planned. It's not like at the University of Kansas where they just keep adding on buildings every, you know, every square inch, squeeze things in. This campus is very organized. It just looks clean and orderly. And so when she looks at it, the first thought in her head is, this seems manageable there it is a college of about 2000 generally a smaller college is probably better for people with ADD because you can actually talk to your professor in big colleges like the one up the street for me you are for 2 years you're going to be talking to teachers assistants teaching assistants who vary from terrific to you know marginal that's just the nature of a big division 1 school For the kids with ADD, well, really for all kids, but especially for kids with ADD, everything on earth, the entire tamale of college survival is surviving freshman year. If you get through freshman year, your chances of getting through sophomore year are even better. (coughs) Pardon me. And if you can get through sophomore year, you're just about home free. Even though you've got those two tough years left, you've gotten through it, you know how to do it, and you will survive. So getting the kid to survive freshman year is everything. And the the college that best matches them is going to be the one that actually takes kind of takes care of kids. One of the things we noticed in the college we were looking at was they had this person they introduced us to. We're not Catholic, but it happens to be a Catholic college. And they are well known for having the nuns look out for the kids and they introduced us to the main person on campus that you would go to to solve all your problems, and she was this nice, you know, motherly lady, and that was very appealing. My daughter realized, here's somebody that I can go to when I need something. Made her feel secure in less of that kind of terrified sense. So again, it kind of depends on which of the categories your kid fits in, but For the most part, those kind of colleges will tend to work better. And if you're talking about a bridge, I'm such a big fan of junior college, I probably would always suggest starting there. But in the bridge colleges, I think having that connection, those smaller classes, and being able to really talk to and feel accountable to professors is a great boon, and it is not present in a lot of colleges. You're kind of on your own a lot of the time, and that doesn't work very well for young people who have trouble holding themselves accountable.
0: Well, thank you. I think that's a question that is on a lot of parents' minds, as uh, this is graduation season from high school, so college is most, oh yes, this is uh, the time to get ready for college. Well we have two similar questions, so I'm going to put them together. One is from Mary, and one is from Jane. And Jane's question, she and her husband have two sons who don't ask for help until all of a sudden they reach that point mm-hmm. of, I'm a failure, I can't do this. And she was wondering, how do they cre- how to create an atmosphere or, or a venue to talk with her sons about some of these strategies that you've presented? And then Mary's question is, is a little similar. She says that uh, she and her husband have a 19-year-old son who is not yet... Um, who is still reaching his maturity, and he needs a lot of help, but he also doesn't want to accept any of the help that's been offered. So what can you suggest to Jane in creating a way to talk with her sons and to marry and helping her son realize he might need some help?
1: Yeah, and again, at the risk of um, of of uh, being sexist, you will notice both of those examples are guys. And what we see in general in how men are socialized in our society is that it is harder to get them to be what's called uh, uh, to, to be affiliating or to have agency, to reach out to others and accept help. Girls are naturally affiliators, and so they tend to work better with parents, with therapists, with mentors to take suggestions. Now that believe me, I have some really difficult girls I work with, and so it's not always easy to do that but they tend to be more affiliating. So guys tend to be more doers and to be the people who are, um, who feel like they're supposed to be independent. So getting around that requires you to do two things that don't go together very well. One is to be reaching out and nurturing and supportive, and the other is to not be shaming. One of the things I talk about in the book extensively is shame. And one of the reasons we see young people not tell the truth who have ADHD, they tend to have problems. Many of them have problems with the truth. is isn't because they're psychopaths. I have people come in here all the time and say, oh, my son is a, a pathological liar. Well, probably not. The reality is when one feels bad about their performance in life, they tend to want to cover that up. And so you always have to put in your head when working with kids with ADHD that there is a shame component built into it. And it's very hard to get around because you can say, it's okay, don't be ashamed, but that's like telling the anxious people to stop worrying. It this is they're looking around at friends and the friend is blowing the ACT away and they're having trouble just opening the book to look at the algebra. And they feel, you know, that old thing with the the, the title of the famous book feel lazy and stupid and crazy. And that is a very shame-based feeling. So ha- you have to to get kids to work with you, they have to feel like um, you're helping them and not making them feel worse. And th- this sounds so easy and it's so hard to do. Uh, every day I'm navigating that or trying to thread that needle. The, s- the second thing is that the earlier you do this, and this is always great when You know, somebody's 17, and you suddenly tell them, well, you should have started that when they were seven. So I don't mean to sound like that. But the sooner you start this kind of coaching and dialogue and non-shaming process, the easier it is for kids to handle it when it really gets down to the brass tacks as it is now. And I think the other thing is to try to the extent possible, and this is tricky, to the extent possible to really listen to and honor that brainstorming I was talking about. What are your goals? And if a young person's goals are not the same as yours, then you've got to try to figure out how you can compromise. That does not mean that the young person's goal is to just sit around and play video games and eat your chips, that you have to go along with that to be supportive and not shame them. It means that if they want to do that, If that's their goal, then you will help them get into their own apartment and get their job and pay for their bills until they're ready to do something that you feel will be a little more beneficial down the road. And to say to them at that time, this is okay. Sitting playing video games in your apartment on your bill with your chips is fine for you to take a few years and do that. We have a whole whole apartment complex in Lawrence that's fairly nice and the secret behind the complex is it sells the rooms by the room. So you are buying just one room of a fourplex apartment that has a commons area. And the value to this, this is a good secret for parents, the value to that is when you have to co sign for your child, which you will have to do, you will only have to co sign for about a $350 single room. Otherwise, if you co sign for your child in an apartment you're signing to be jointly and severally liable for the entire apartment. Why this is good for the ADD people is it allows them to be out on their own for a couple of years, pay as minimal a rent in a safe environment as they can be, and maybe get a little more motivated to come back to you later and say, okay, now I'm ready to, to negotiate how to spend resources and energy, and to accept your help and direction. Because another little secret in life is that the most motivated motivated person in a relationship always has the least power. Think about it. The most motivated person in any relationship always has the least power. So if you're in there saying to your son, we've just got to get you back in JUCO. We've just got to just got to find a way for you. I'm just so worried that you're not going to be able to make it. Well, you're all full of energy, and that frees the child to sit back and say, I don't have to worry about this. You're the one that's worried. Once you step back and say, I'm going to let you figure this out. Get back to me when you're ready. Then you become the less motivated partner, and that's when you have greater power. And these are the kind of things nobody sits around and thinks about until you have to deal with it. It's a really good question, and I, it, it's hard to do justice to it in this short time, but that is my best shot.
0: Thank you. And I, I think that's an interesting way of putting it that the person who is the most motivated has the least power. It's well, good dating advice, next, also. It is good dating advice, and that's also something very important at this age as young adults are forming partnerships and romantic relationships and looking forward to to possibly being married. Well our next question is coming from a parent who has a 17 year old who is struggling to get to bed at night and to get to sleep at night and because of this he's late to school every morning and they have tried uh, the different suggestions by the doctor and nothing is helping. Her concern is how is this young person going to manage going to college if he can't get a good sleep schedule at home?
1: Yeah, what a mess! I wish I knew, and and I'll go ahead and talk about that. And if the person can give us a quick synopsis, if we have time at the end, what suggestions the doctor has made, because I can, I, that might be helpful. But here is the short version: Sleep is a tricky deal with ADHD because on one hand, and I, if people want to see what I've said about this in the book. I talk a lot about it. On one hand sleep deprivation can produce ADHD-like symptoms, the, and I've seen it in my office. If you sleep poorly, you will become more inattentive and have poor concentration and so on and so on, and sometimes we'll have people show up and want to be on stimulants just because they're not sleeping very good, which obviously doesn't make a very good diagnostic picture. The flip side of that is I've kind of invented a diagnosis. I pro, let's all be clear this is a doctor Wessism, but I call it ADD-related insomnia. Both of my children have it, and this is regardless of whether they're on medicine, uh, they do not sleep well. Interestingly enough, the people who really have this bad, you give them particularly Ritalin, uh, and they will be tired. These are the ADD people who drink a pot of coffee and go to bed, Um, but there are others who that doesn't work, and this just has to do with brain chemistry and dopamine. So what you do have to do is try and figure out, is the sleep problem related to ADD, is it related to stimulant medication, or is it its own problem? And if it is not stimulants, if it is a part of their brain chemistry, then you have two things. Most of the time you have to do both, and one of them is hard. The first thing is try to develop better sleep hygiene. And this is so much harder to do. We go to training seminars on this, and everybody just groans when somebody says sleep hygiene because it's that sort of thing that is a fancy way of saying sleep on a schedule. And this is so much harder to do than it is to talk about. So that's why you need the second thing. And there are medicines, Trazodone being the most common, you can talk to your prescriber about, let's all remember I'm not a prescriber. But Trazodone is the most commonly prescribed medicine for sleep in the country and it's not even on label for sleep. It just happens to make people sleepy. So if you have an actual sleep problem and you probably want to have a kid tested for sleep apnea and for other sleep problems, they now have take home kits for that that you can get if you can figure those out and rule them out, they may just have to have a sleep aid in order to sleep. Some people get tremendous benefit out of melatonin, by all means, if your doctor thinks that's a good idea, give it a shot. But some kids just don't have the right brain chemistry at night to get this done. And in order to get a a better circadian rhythm going, a better sleep cycle, they actually have to do medicine. And then they have to maintain the discipline of that sleep cycle, which as most of us know who've done this, is not the strong suit for the kids with ADD. But sleep is an underlying problem more psychological disorders than you can shake a stick at.
0: Well, thank you. We are at our last questions. And uh, there are two questions together, again, one is from Dave and one is from Will. Will's question is, you've mentioned a bridge college, and he was wondering what you mean by that phrase, what is a bridge college? Oh, okay. And yep. And Dave has a, a question, it's a little bit more in depth, but do you have any suggestions on finding a gap year program for a young adult?
1: Yeah, great questions. Okay, I'm sorry for being jargony with the bridge college, all that means is you get an associate's degree or an accumulation of hours from a junior college up to about 60 to 68 hours. And then that either gives you an associate's degree or these hours you can then take to a regular four-year college, and you come in as a what's called a JUCO transfer. And by the way, some colleges offer scholarships for that. Um, that's so that's kind of neat. Uh, and the bridge simply means you bridge from the associate's degree to a bachelor's degree. Um, the gap year is a great idea. I'm a huge believer in gap years, um, and and that's a little jargony. That just means you don't go to college. You do something different. It's very clear in our society that um, people who don't have any secondary, post-secondary education are in trouble. But we have a broad range of possibilities for that now. There are many technical jobs. Um, one of the things we want to be looking forward to in the next 20 years is finding jobs that will not be made obsolete by robots. And I'm not kidding. That sounds like science fiction. Read any legitimate business publication right now, including I believe the New York Times this week, and they are saying that um, robots are going to be doing blue, white-collar jobs now as well as blue-collar jobs. So kids need to be thinking as they are. Um, looking ahead for college, how that's going to fit. Well, being in a gap year allows you to gain some maturity, gain some insight into what you really want to do, and consider what kinds of careers, what kinds of work you want to be involved in, whether it's trade school, or whether you want to compete with the robots in college. That gap year is a great idea. Now, how to create one? I don't. I don't know that there are formal programs for that. There may be. You could Google them. But it's usually something you invent. And it can range from doing AmeriCorps or uh, some kind – I said that. I actually think you have to have a degree to do AmeriCorps now that I said it. Um, But to do some kind of work, some kind of meaningful work, preferably in an area you're interested in, or to do volunteering or to travel Uh, or to do something that is going to be beneficial. Too many young people think a gap year is back to the thing about the chips and the video games on the couch. And when you're sitting down to talk to a kid about that, um, it needs to be something that is um, going to, to gain them something. And actually, I just made a note here, I do have a kid who does not have a degree doing AmeriCorps. So that would be a possibility also.
0: Well, thank you so very much. I think your answers have helped a lot of parents have an idea of how they can help their young adults and their teenagers entering young adulthood, and has hopefully made this uh, transition a little bit smoother for some of our young adults. For our audience members, I hope so too. I think that you've offered some sound advice. Well, for our audience members, we hope that you've enjoyed this presentation and this opportunity to hear from Dr. Crenshaw. Please take a moment to send us your feedback through the survey that will appear on your screen at the end of the webcast. Your survey and your comments help us to better serve the ADHD community through our topics. On Wednesday, May 20th, Dr. Allison Gertes will offer a professional discussion on treatment for children from Spanish-speaking families, and this is geared primarily towards professionals. You can start registering now at HelpForADHD.org. This has been a presentation in the National Resource Center on ADHD. We hope that you have enjoyed the presentation, and we hope you have a pleasant rest of your day. This concludes our broadcast.